Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your grace to us and your mercy in Christ to turn our hearts to behold you in your Son. Uh, to, for we know that if we have seen the Son, we have seen the Father. And we pray, Father, that we would delight in the Son, that we may glorify you. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fill us tonight, refresh us as we close this Lord's Day. Lord, we pray that all would close with Christ, that we would have settled all business with you and made ourselves right with you through the means you've given us, and that we might lay ourselves bare before you, seeking your face and receiving your grace. We love you, Father. We thank you for your mercy to us. We pray you protect us from all evil. We pray for all the churches that name in the name of Christ, that they might glorify you and honor you, and for the leaders of our nation, that they might do the same, being ministers of you, Lord, for the purpose that they have been ordained, that they might walk in righteousness and rule according to your law. We lift all up to you, Lord, knowing it is your holy will, so that we might live a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. And this we pray tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so uh, welcome back. We are in Psalm 26 is our lesson night, and we'll be um, uh, looking at the entirety of the psalm as we continue our study, the uh, few psalms this month leading up, and then I'm going to have some of our guys jump in in March to also give a hand at these uh, some of these psalms. So Brother JT, Brother Rob will be helping us in March. Uh, So we pick up in Psalm 26. Again, we are always coming to the psalm with a few things in mind. One, background, and then we're also looking for the center of the psalm because it's going to determine the meaning of it. And we get here um, a great deal out of a psalm that perhaps you may not have known it's connected to Psalm 1. And it's in the early days of uh, David, at least most likely according to Eric Lane, whom we're following the order uh, of his study and the focus on the Bible uh, commentary. So, um, so with that, let's begin just reading. It says, Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity, and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Prove me, O Lord. Try me. Test my heart and my mind. For your steadfast love is before my eyes, and I walk in your faithfulness. I do not sit with men of falsehood, nor do I consort with hypocrites. I hate the assembly of evildoers, and I will not sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence, and I go around your altar, O Lord, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous deeds. O Lord, I love the habitation of your house and the place where your glory dwells. Do not sweep my soul away with sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices, in whose right hands are full of bribes. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. Redeem me and be gracious to me. My foot stands on level ground, and in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. The king's word for his kings and queens. Amen. So as we look at this psalm, I want you to notice, uh, first of all, the center of the psalm is found in verse 7, proclaiming thanksgiving aloud and telling all your wondrous 
deeds. There is in this psalm a center of gratitude and also of humble, faithful service. If we're to call this message uh, something, we may call it how to be a faithful and a grateful servant of God. And just to turn to Eric Lane just for a moment on this, um, just to read kind of how he connects this psalm to the early period of David's life. Listen to this brief paragraph. It says, uh, David meditates on the Sabbath. It says, this psalm attributed to David has similarities with Psalm 1, for he's still conscious of the difference between the righteous and the wicked. He's still clear about which company to choose. If you compare verses 4 and 5 to verse 1 of the first psalm, uh, you'll find that comparison. He appears to be examining himself prior to going up to the house of God, which would have would be his local meeting place. Um, and in the in the period of David that we've looked at already, some of the intro there, we're not going to repeat all that, but he would have gone up to Shiloh or we would have gone up to whatever the local meeting place for the people of God in Bethlehem would have been. That would have been uh, when he refers to the house of God. This would therefore probably be composed on uh, or for the Sabbath day. And there and then he prays for grace to keep his resolutions. So those are the basic background of this. Um, more can be gleaned from Eric Lane on this, but, uh, but the idea is the theme is strikingly similar to Psalm 1. The way I noted it is I underlined these words, and that is in verse 1, the word walked. In verse 4, the word sit. And in verse 12, the word stands. Because you'll notice if you go back to Psalm 1, you have that great and famous area of quote that all Christians know of Psalm 1, that I'm not going to walk, uh, it's walk or sit or stand, speaking of the company of evildoers, the counsel, um, and the ways of the wicked. So here you have the same idea. And so Eric Lane um, pairs this psalm into the early days of, of David. Uh, so this would be prior to his anointing, prior to his being uh, uh, going up against Goliath, prior to all of those things. This is the time this would fall. And he would be facing then characters that exist in that time. And we actually have a record of those uh, characters in particular. And uh, back in Psalm, uh, I'm sorry, Samuel. Samuel chapter 2, 12 through 36, we'll look at in a minute. But let me draw your attention to why I'm going there. And that is, if you look at verses 4 and 5, notice he's making a distinction here again, like Psalm 1, between the righteous and the wicked. He speaks of them as men of falsehood, hypocrites, evildoers. And he speaks of them in terms of the assembly. They are in the assembly. In fact, it, it's um, not that they simply are in the assembly. They are um, leading in many ways as priests. We find uh, this back in, in 1 Samuel. So I'm going to read a, a section. You may even know who these characters are, but if you wanted a bad example of what it was to be in the house of God and to abuse His graces, um, you would find it in 1 Samuel chapter 2, in verses uh, 12 and following, where it, 
it speaks of Eli's worthless sons. In fact, it even says there now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Uh, There's a Hebrew word behind that idea of worthlessness. It shows up in the Proverbs, um, I believe, describing what that exactly means. We know uh, ability to go and do all of that study tonight, but we're just getting a background. It says they did not know the Lord. And that's a key. Whatever worthlessness means in this respect, they don't know the Lord. And the custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. And he would, he would thrust it into the pan or kettle, or cauldron, um, or pot. You sometimes wonder how uh, that kind of picture of kind of the fork there like that got put into the devil's hands in the mythology of what people think the devil is like. He's more of a masquerader of light, but nonetheless, here's a, a picture of real evil. And these two sons are worthless sons. They don't know the Lord. And... They are acting in a way that is evidently noted by uh, the book here of Samuel that is obviously disdained before the Lord. He, they would thrust into the pan or kettle, the cauldron or pot, and all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. And this is what they did, it says, at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. And you'll find the, the place of Shiloh being a place of the house of God there and it it will come to a point of destruction because God will ask later in Scripture, go up and see what happened to Shiloh. Because later in time, when the exile is about to take place, there were some elders of the land who thought they were safe just because they were in the house of God. And they thought they could just get away with, with acting the way they were. Jesus also addressed that type of crowd when he called them a den of thieves and robbers. So the way we treat the house of God at any era of history matters. And he sees all things. He knows the heart. And he especially holds those who would serve in a a capacity like this, where they're leading the people of God, or they're priests, or priest capacity, before the people of God. And yet here they are abusing the very things that are being used for the Lord and for the benefit of, of the people. And so it says here that, Before the fats burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast. And for he would not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if you do any study on the law, you know that this is going to be something of great um, for it being forbidden in the law. But it says here, and if the man said to them, or to him, let them burn the fat first. Okay, we got that. No, no, you must give it now, he said. Or, and this is the way they were, they would take it by force. And thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. And notice that's the key thing, in the sight of the Lord. Some people think, well, um, somehow they can hide themselves behind their religiosity and behind their duties and service in the church um, at the time. And I'm using the word church, obviously, anachronistically. Uh, This was the house of God, Judaistic type religion. But they're hiding behind the religion of Yahweh. They're hiding in this place. And they don't think he sees. But here, the prophet Samuel is saying, in the sight of God, this is what matters. Before the face of God, per se. Now, Samuel was ministering 
um, before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe. It goes on there. There's a contrast. I'm going to jump down to verse 22. Eli was old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing, and to all, to all Israel, and how they were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. So not only did God see what was going on, people saw what was happening. Um, So then you see that it says, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, Eli said, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. That's a hard saying, isn't it? They're they're not listening. God doesn't grant them the gift of listening because it's God's will to destroy them. That's a hard saying, but that's exactly what it says as to why they didn't listen to the voice of their father. But yet, the contrast comes in with the boy Samuel again, and we find other things referenced here. Um, But all the way down into Eli's household, we find it comes again, verse 27, there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, thus says the Lord, did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and sub subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar and burn incense and wear the ephod before me? And I gave, or an ephod before me, I gave to the house of my father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I have commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above my fattened, uh, um, honor sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. And therefore the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now, and this shows you can't presume, you can't presume that God is not obligated uh, to just do what you want if you presume on his grace. It says here, I promised, but... Now the Lord declares, far be it from me, for those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I'll cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then in distress, you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. And the only one of whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they're named, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and my mind. In my mind, and I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places. 
that I may eat a morsel of bread. So that is what's going on in the early days before David is even on the radar. He's a young man. He is experiencing what a shepherd would because the psalm after this we've already covered is Psalm 23. We'll actually jump over that because we covered it at the end of the year. But this is the context. Psalm 1, Psalm 26, Psalm 23, and then there'll be, I think it's Psalm 19 and others. That's the background. That's the picture of wickedness that's going on in these days. It's still, in a sense, um, if you notice that the days of judges stretches into the time of Samuel, who is a judge. So this is a very dark time. It's a very t- uh, a great time where it doesn't take much to stand out as a righteous man because there's so much wickedness. Everybody's doing what's right in their own eyes all the way into the priesthood of the house of God. It's affecting every area that not even uh, the priest of God's house are faithful and grateful uh, men of God. So Psalm 26 is about how, how can we be uh, faithful and grateful servants of God? That's what David really is displaying before us is how we can be a faithful and grateful servant of the Lord. This is foremost going to describe Christ, but it also describes us in Christ. That it's a lesson that David would teach us so that we would not emulate uh, worthless men, but that we might be men and women who are grateful and also faithful. And oftentimes you have in, in the house of God today, you have some that are very faithful, but they may not be grateful. And then you have some that are very grateful, but they might not be faithful. Right? You meet people, sometimes they're just so thankful for um, God's house and, and thankful for uh, God's ministry and thankful for the things of God, but they may not be very faithful to those things and faithful to the people of God. They're very spotty. And so you have that. And so this psalm would say, hey, here we need to, bring, we need to shore this up a little and make sure you're not just grateful, but God wants to make you faithful. And then you meet people, sometimes they're very faithful. I mean, they're, very, they're, they're, they're punctual, they're solid, they're, they're, they're there. They're, they're, you're going to wonder if they're, if they're missing, you're, you know, you're, you're wondering what's going on. They're just so faithful. But they're maybe missing gratitude. They're not serving the Lord with joy and gladness. They're serving the Lord. But they're serving the Lord without gratitude. And that's perhaps even greater sin than a lack of of faithfulness is to serve the Lord without gratitude, to serve Him without being thankful, to serve Him as if He needs something. He doesn't need any of us. But He includes us because we're His image bearers and He loves us on the basis of His own character as we learned today. But He doesn't need us to be happy. He doesn't need us to be, be perfect. He is perfect. He, he needs nothing. He needs no one. We get to serve the Lord. And so there the reality is God's grace to us makes us thankful. But if you don't understand grace, you never be thankful. It'll all be works. You can tell someone who just understands some types of works-based salvation, they're never grateful. But they might be faithful to do those things for the wrong reasons. Or functionally, 
They might have just got off track. And we can all get off track. We can all improve our faithfulness and we can all improve our, our gratitude. Nobody, nobody is lacking a need to improve these things throughout life. None of us are perfect in this. So the psalm speaks to all of us, calling us to be faithful and grateful servants of God. So the question is, how does this psalm teach this? And we see it foremost in the sense that that center of it telling us, here is a man going around the altar, not like Eli's sons that are worthless, who are taking of the raw meat and demanding it by force. They're not grateful. They're abusing the house of God and the things of God. Here, David is going around the altar giving thanks. There's the contrast. He's, he's proclaiming thanksgiving aloud. What a contrast it is to the culture at the time in the house of God. He's telling of the wondrous deeds. He's telling what God did. That's largely the commission of the church. It's not for us to... Uh, evangelism isn't even the main thing. Uh, it's, it's the fact that we are here to tell people what God has done, that the church is God's evangelism plan to win the nations to himself. Is We're proclaiming constantly what God has done. And when people really see what he's done, they realize the magnificence of his grace and his mercy and his love towards them, that they will be compelled by the kindness of God to come into the fold. He's gathering nations this day, and we'll do so to the end of time. So here you have this contrast, verse 7, the center. He washes his hands in innocence. He goes around his altar, and he, he calls upon him as Yahweh, as O Lord, L-O-R-D, capitalized there in verses 6 and 7. So there's the center. That gives us, gives us a clue of the portrait of the faithful and grateful man of God worshiping. Now, um, you see, there's a distinction, and that is um, we have to understand the distinction between the wicked, between the false, between the hypocrites, between the assembly of evildoers, um, and all that. But we have to do it in such a way that we don't necessarily begin to think just because there are wicked or hypocrites in the church that we have some excuse to say, well, I don't want to do that because there's some hypocrites in the church or some wicked in the church. And well, if it's going to be like that in this world, let's just be honest, we'll never come. We'll never be a part of the assembly because there's no assembly that's completely free of that. And the lesson is given in the context of what we just read. Just because there are two worthless priests there in the house of God didn't prevent David from going up to the house of God. Didn't prevent David from giving thanks and telling of the wondrous deeds of God before the Lord. Because that's the way the house of God ultimately, um, having its seed and the leaving of the righteousness of God that's going to spread is going to change. And it's going to, uh, the good always is going to overcome the evil. And, and you're going to have the leaven of the kingdom is always going to conquer the kingdom of evil. So he doesn't give that excuse. Now, are there places and things that we shouldn't be around? Yeah, there are assemblies of the wicked that you may go through and, and really examine yourself. And I think this psalm calls you to self-examination, calls me to self-examine our hearts. Is are we sitting with, um, are we walking with, and are we standing with, even in a progressive way, right? Because Psalm 1, that's what it does. It says, I'm not going to walk, I'm not going to stand before you long. 
as I've heard preachers preach on that before, is by the time you just get relaxed, you start sitting with them. The point is, is if you're sitting with scoffers, if you become part of the gang mentality, go to Proverbs 1, right? They say, come along with us and share. We'll have one purse. We'll have power, we'll have popularity. And they'll do it at the expense of the blood of others. And in my ignorance, I remember a day that I joined that crowd. But I'm asking you as a Christian, if you're joining in in so-called professing Christians that are acting no different than the world. Because there's a lot out there. There's professing Christians out there today that because of them, the name of God's blasphemed in the way they're acting towards other believers. They could be absolutely right about certain things, but their, their mob gang mentality is classified and clearly scoffing. And we're not made to do that. We're not made to... Uh, bring others down even more absolutely right. We're, we're made to edify and build up the house of God and glorify the Lord. We contend for the faith, which means there's a time to fight, but we have to fight according to the rules. And Scripture gives us rules and how we are to carry out that warfare. Um, but we're not to join a crowd and join in in humiliating people. Because we know more than that. And there's a lot of that going on. And I would just challenge you to examine your heart if you're hanging around the wrong crowd, if you're standing uh, the wrong way, or if you're, if you're taking the counsel of the world instead of the counsel of God. A lot of times people just fish for whatever counsel they want to hear until they get the counsel they want to do what they want. But the Word of God gives you good counsel. And if you're around God's people that are dedicated to the Word, they're going to give you good counsel if they're in the Word. And it should be, it'll show up everywhere. You're not going to have to wonder, is this good counsel? You're going to see it coming up in the Word when you read the Bible. You're going to see it when you're talking and counseling each other in the church as you have conversations. You're going to see it when you bring maybe heavy matters because you're in the midst of something that's really hard to carry. When you bring it to church leadership and we're trying to wrestle with you and pray with you through that. That counsel should all align because the Spirit of God is not a spirit of confusion. He's going to give you a clear message and you're going to know exactly God's will. The question is, are you seeking counsel, though, through other means? This is what's happened in biblical psychology because many of the problems that occur in the, Christ, in the, in the mind of man, not just the Christian mind, deal with the problem of guilt. 99% of the problems, I'm told, even by uh, secular psychiatry and psychology, which was, which was my major going in in the secular world before I was saved. All that up in the 90 percentiles deals with guilt that people don't know how to deal with. It's not because they actually have something physically messed up in their brain. There are some that do, and it necessitates um, actual uh, medical treatment. But we're talking about the majority of people are dealing with matters that actually can be solved only by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And what has happened is psychology was, was brought about in order to replace theology. And if you go back to the Puritans, they were known, they were known as physicians of the soul so as to direct people in ways in which they could lay their guilt upon the cross of Jesus Christ, be freed and be able to walk in wholesomeness with God in peace and in grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. So 
we need to be careful that we're not following counsel of the world when we have problems. That we won't run to the first thing or the first help book or the first guru that's going to give us a quick solution. And I can tell you from experience over the years, there is no quick solution to deal with big problems. Not even, not even when you're entering into trying to figure out what this Christian message is and hear it clearly, is it a quick solution? It's something that takes time to digest and to think through and to understand. It, was, it may be that you get saved the moment you hear it and you believe and God's regenerated you, but that doesn't mean that the burdens fall off overnight. If you read the Pilgrim's Progress, what you'll find is that it took a long time for him to get up to that hill and see the cross and the burden come off his back. But the place he was saved, scholars indicate, was at the wicked gate. That's a, not a wicked, but W-I-C-K-E-T. The British, they're kind of weird. They spell things and talk about things. But the wicked gate's a small little door. He got saved there. He has the burden roll off his back down the hill when he goes up to the cross in Calvary. And that's the same for you and me, especially if we're pioneering this thing and we don't come out of a Christian household and we haven't been brought gradually to the faith. But I think it also applies to young people who've been brought up in, in Christian homes, have believed in the Lord, don't know a day when they didn't, And as they do, they also begin to experience burdens and difficulties in life that require a steep walk up a hill so they can see the cross clearly. It's not going to come easy. It's by violence that has entered the kingdom of heaven. And so it's it's a fight of faith for everybody. You live long enough, you're going to go through these difficulties, but they're not going to destroy you. They're going to, as we said this morning, they're going to produce good in you. In Christ's likeness, because God designs those things to do so, as, as I think it was maybe Spurgeon, that God designed the wave um, there where it throws you against the rock, but you come to a point where you would kiss that wave knowing of what it will produce in the end. Maybe not at the time, and the difficulty and pain of what's going on, but when you see the end result of it, you'll thank God that he allowed certain things to come in your life so that you would be shaped to be more like him. And the peace and the joy that results, that he took you through whatever was necessary in order to shape you to be more like his son, to give you the ultimate and maximal joy and not a shortcut. So, with all that said, we have a great contrast between um, the wicked. We, we read in Psalm 34 this morning, and I want to study it out more, but me and Cher were talking about this before I left. And it's that phrase there at the end of Psalm 34 where it talks about afflictions. They will, just, they will slay the wicked. They will slay the wicked. But see, afflictions, as we learn in Romans 5, they end up, the sufferings, we can rejoice at the cause of them because they produce endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope and hope will not put you to shame. You can have the same events raining upon the righteous, but instead of destroying the righteous, they make them stronger and more valiant because God is proving himself in that person as authentic and genuine. So this is, this is the way God works in our lives. His ways are not our ways. He has uh, all wisdom. He knows what is necessary for us. And evidently, David's experienced at least some pressure in the matter of having to call for vindication. 
He's probably run up against some of these worthless men who may have slandered him. He certainly will experience a career of that. Excluded him, for we see that his own brothers and his own parents, his his own testimony was that uh, his father and mother even forsook him, but the Lord took him in. So he was in a culture even that his own home was putting him out and putting him away. Psalm 1 shows how he decided to be content with the Lord in that. How his daily routine was not going to sit there and, and, and uh, be one who's complaining, but he was going to be content about that God had him there and he was going to meditate on the Word and he was going to be blessed no matter what others did to him. And here he's saying, though, vindicate me. And that's a word that has as its root righteousness or justification. So it's the same way um, if you see, vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Well, in one way, we could say, if this is speaking of the true David Christ, that's absolutely true. It also is true, though, for the believer like David, if he's justified. Right, because we learn that justification declares you righteous in, uh, by the Lord because he has acquitted you on the basis of the sacrifice of his Messiah and uh, of his son. So here, he's basically saying, I stand justified, just like Romans 5, 1 through 5, comparatively. I stand justified. And, um, and at the end, um, he says it too, my foot stands on level ground, and in the great assembly, I will bless the Lord. If, just like this morning, we're talking about, if you don't have this nailed down, the rock-solid certainty of justification in your life, it's going to be hard for you to know you're meant to receive the goodness. You're the, you're the one that's meant to receive the benefits of God because you're His children. But if you're not assured in some measure you are His children, when the Father comes to dispense those things, well, you're going to be out there thinking you're still a beggar. And God wants you to know who you are in Christ. Ephesians 1 is a great place to study this out. Do some more study. What has Christ done for you? Who, you? who are you in Christ Jesus in union with Him? But, but fight for assurance because it's your heaven on earth. Now, He's justified, verses 1 and verse 12. He's different, verses 4 through 5, than the wicked. He's, as it says, central. He's a faithful and thankful servant. He loves God's house, and he loves the place of where God's glory dwells. He loves to be there, not because of the people that are there so much as he loves that God is there. That's where God dwells. That's where God blesses. That's where God dispenses grace, and he wants to be there. That's why he's faithful. He's not faithful based on if the priests are what they need to be or if his parents or family are what they need to be. He's there because God's everything he promised to be. That's going to stir faithfulness. And he also knows that if it came down to it, if, the, if, if justification wasn't true for him, he could be swept away with the wicked. He would deserve it. It says, don't sweep my soul away from sinners, nor my life with bloodthirsty men in whose hands are evil devices, whose right hands are full of bribes. Don't mix me up with them. Don't you want to do that sometimes? You might, might be, I don't know, if you're on a plane with somebody and you're looking around and 
I suppose if you looked around and you saw somebody that you know has a reputation for just outright evil, uh, you probably have a little bit of a reason to start getting a little nervous. But you know how it goes too. There might be somebody on there that's also famous for righteousness. And I'm just going to use an example. I'm not commending the man because there, there's problems with the style of ministry. But, you know, people back in the day, they saw Billy Graham on a plane. They'd be like, okay, we're good to go. He's here, right? The way people look at different people, whoever the hero is of the time, right? They say, well, that's a righteous man. It's a holy man. So I'm good, right? We should maybe think on that a little bit as that we don't want to be mixed up with the wicked. We should be outstanding in regards to not, not simply what we do, but the gratitude we do it with and how faithfully we do it. We should be aiming for that. That's what David is aiming for. And he prays according to that. He said, I, I don't want to be swept away, my soul especially, to be swept away with sinners. I'm going to be different. But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. He's resolved in the house of God if there's any place to be resolved about doing righteousness, it should be in God's house. He says, I will walk in my integrity. This isn't a vow. It's not an oath. It's not any of that. It's a commitment. It's an open commitment and resolve because it's what he wants to do. It's his yes before God. But in all of that, you would wonder, okay, and, and maybe even miss this, that in, in the, both sides of this psalm, there is a confession that as justified as he is, as resolved as he is, as different as he is, he still sees he needs the grace of God. And I, in fact, I think that's the key. He never loses sight of how much he needs God's grace. Look at verse 3. Your steadfast love is before my eyes and I walk in your faithfulness. Well, steadfast love is the covenant love. It's the hesed or kesed love of God. It's the love that's revealed in His covenants. Verse 11, But as for me, I shall walk in my integrity. But then He says this, Redeem me and be gracious to me. He never gets over the fact that He continues to need the grace of God. And the justified believer today, they are secure, rock-solid secure, committed to the obedience of the Lord because of the grace of God, but they don't cease needing the grace of God, not to make them children of God, but to sanctify them and to prove them as God's children because there's delight in that, there's good in that, and there's good done towards others in, in that in the long run. That's the way God, God's plan is to reach the world through such righteous, grateful, faithful servants of God. So, um, so let me go over a few things that we've said here. One, you either identify with the godly or the ungodly. Especially when you read the Psalms, you're going to um, identify with one or the other. You're going to put yourself in the category of, I'm part of the godly. The credibility for doing that is if you've trusted Jesus Christ by faith. Because if you're not justified, you're not part of the godly. You also can make the mistake of thinking you're not part of the godly because you're not perfect in your eyes. Maybe you're just a perfectionist and you just can't ever, ever accept the fact that he's accepted you fully. I think Jesus did a pretty good job on the cross. I think he covered all of our sins on the cross. 
The question is not how good we are. The question when it comes to assurance is looking to Christ. If you're struggling with assurance and the assurance that you're complete, complete in Him, you don't look within first. You look without to God first. You look to God. You look to Christ. You look at the cross. It is only secondary that you begin to do the examination of the heart. But it will tell a lot about you if you run to Christ. Number two. When you do, when you do identify yourself with the godly and look to the cross, having that assurance, then you'll be able to recognize the fruit. Because like uh, John 15 tells us, He's the vine, we are the branches, abide in Him and He in us. Um, and you'll bear much fruit. The truth is, is that you're growing always a lot more as a Christian believer than you may think you are, than you can see you are. And the more your, your sight is set on looking to Jesus, the author and perfecter of your faith, the more you're going to be able to demonstrate faith. Uh, so when you do that, you're going to be able to then, over time, recognize some fruit in your life. And that's going to help and encourage and help you have further distinguishing marks about what it is. Uh, building your confidence over time and years. Nobody wants to destroy your confidence more than Satan would want to destroy your confidence. But don't join with Satan in being a partner with him in losing your confidence. Don't uh, doubt in the dark what God has shown you in the light is what my pastor used to tell me. So, number three. Belonging to God makes a difference. It's like the difference between dogs and wolves. You end up uh, looking out. Some people can't tell the difference. See a bunch of animals, they look like dogs. There's a wolf. Somebody has a trained eye, they can see there's a wolf in there. Well, we're all human beings. But there's a nature that is not only evident in the heart, but it shines in our faces because the righteous will become radiant. And I don't care where you go in the world. I've not been many places in the world, but I have been in different places of the world. And no matter where you are, you can find Christian believers. And they not only are different, they look different. I go, I go some places even in our locality to do uh, things for uh, my daughters. And I'll see people going and coming And what I'll notice a lot of times is there are those who have their heads hung in shame. They're guilty about life. They're guilty about... You can just see it. And there are those who have their chins up because they're not ashamed anymore. And uh, that's the mark of the Christian. When When you're a believer, the shame is gone now. He despised the shame. He took the shame. So as a Christian, lift your head up, lift your eyes up, keep your chin up in the midst of this world. And even on your worst day, the fact of the matter is you may fall, you may fall seven times, but you'll keep getting up because of the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. We have never a reason to be ashamed if we keep going to the cross. We can be transformed to be more like Him. Belonging to God makes a difference. Like the difference between dogs and wolves. It all looks like humans to everybody else, but the Christian's eye is going to be changed to look at life different, and to look at others different. And you'll be able to identify 
those who aren't like that. But you also build to identify at times those whose faces shine radiantly because they've been freed. That's the crowd you want to be around. That's the type of men and women that you want to be around. Faithful, grateful servants of God. Number four, as we said, grace is always needed. David prays and trusts God's promises as a justified, regenerate servant. He's not doing that in order to be justified and regenerate. He's already changed from the inside out, but he always knows he needs the grace of God, and we should know that if we're going to be faithful and grateful servants. Number five, justification is absolutely complete. David is never counted among the wicked on his worst day. And that goes for at this early point in his life and on his worst day of his life that's recorded in Scripture. He is never counted among the wicked. And if David, on his worst day or best day, is completely justified, so it is true for everybody who also follows the servants of the king. That will make us grateful. And if we understand why we're here and what we're doing in this house of God, even in this place, that we're here because God has promised to bless the assembly of his people and to benefit us in the gathering until he comes again, then we also will be able to be faithful, grow in our faithfulness and grow in our gratitude uh, before the Lord. Our Lord rose from the grave and stood in victory. He has given us victory in justifying us. We stand justified before our God on the basis of Christ's work alone. And therefore, shame can be done away with. Gratitude will flow. Our eyes being on the Lord always where His glory dwells we will be able to be faithful and grateful servants. May this be a help to you. Let's stand together to sing to our Lord. And I don't know the number.